Welcome to Victory Church Podcast. At Victory, we are committed to connecting people to God, His church and their purpose. For more information, visit victorychurch.net.au. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. What a happy moment that was. I was in the third service at Ed's church and I got a tap on the shoulder. One of the staff said to me, your bag has arrived, it's in your room. And of all the things happening in the service that was to do with supernatural, global, spiritual things, no happier news could have touched my ears than your bag has arrived. But I felt a little bit like doubting Thomas until I touch it and see it with my own hands and eyes. I will not believe it is really present in my room because it's been supposed to have been there for four days, but all along it was in Hong Kong all by itself. So I arrived here and since Friday morning, I have been in the clothes I arrived in, and I had a white t-shirt, and Edge uh, Hospitality guys kindly bought me a, another white t-shirt, and so I had a second one, and uh, it's, it's not good having one white t-shirt when you're a spiller. So I have eaten leaning over tables in an unusual way that probably looked odd, them not knowing I was trying to protect the, the white t-shirt from an accident, knowing I had no other option. So they helped me with a white t-shirt, but no one asked me about my underwear. Because <laughs> for three nights, I've been washing it every night in the hotel in shampoo. <laughs> and uh, what I discovered was the, the dosage is important to get right. <laughs> Too much shampoo and... It all goes very frothy, <laughs> bubbly. Um, and so by the second day, I had realized that it's even better with a bit of conditioner. <laughs> and the comfort level is another level with conditioner. So I know you don't care, but you may need this one day. I'm glad I told you. So when Pastor Jonathan realized that I was washing my smalls every night, um, he sent his staff one of his team, hospitality team, yesterday while I was here. Uh, and when I got back to the hotel in the evening, there was a package of the concierge with my underwear delivery in. So I went to the concierge and said, Mr. Scanlon, I have a package here. And I could see it sat there behind him in a little white gift bag. And inside, the, the underwear was not in another bag, which it should have been, I felt for discretion. But anyway, <laughs> I didn't care. I was just desperate. So... I said to the young man, yes, I'm Mr. Scanlon. That's got my name on it. It's for me. He said to me, do you have any ID? I said, uh, no, I don't have any ID. Well, he said, can you give me the name of the person that dropped it off? I said, no. Well, who, who is involved in you know, the package? I said, well, I'm here you know, with Ed's church and I don't know. And he's like on his little thing, tapping keys. And I'm thinking to myself, this is ridiculous. So he calls over the manager who appeared in a very managerial way. Yes, what's the problem? So I've got now two intelligent people, highly trained in the hotel trade and customer relations. And the manager says to me, you have no idea. I said, I don't have any ID. It's a package. It's underwear. Me thinking to myself, so do they think I am trying to steal Mr. Scanlon's underwear? <laughs> Is that what they're trying to prevent happening is what I'm thinking to myself as this ridiculous conversation unfolds. So the manager said, do you have ID in your room? I said, yes, I have a passport. He said, then my colleague here will go with you up to your room. 
He'll carry the package. You can't touch it. And he will walk with you to your room. You'll go into your room, get your passport. You'll bring it out of your room, show him your passport, and he will hand you the package. So today I wore underwear that was passport protected <laughs> stuff. I know. So getting my bag back today was just the end of a, a whole new era and level I went to in the last few days in creative management of my crisis situation. So I'm so happy. I'm the happiest I've been all day because I have my bag with me. Never been as happy to see a bag in all my life. How sad is that? It's a joy to be here with you guys, uh, Victory Church. You have hosted me beautifully on both times I have been here and your pastor's Tony and Kath have kindly allowed me to host a couple of events here. Well, they've hosted them. Last year, my communication masterclass, and yesterday, my Growing Big People event. And just appreciate these guys that have become new friends of mine, and they are lovely people. I hope you know that. That's not true of all pastors, you know. It's not. Some pastors are miserable and grumpy and not very sociable. You wonder why they picked that job, but it's true. But your pastors are not just great leaders, and they love you to bits, but they are lovely people. And to be a lovely people this far into ministry means that they have not allowed pastoring to make them not lovely people, because pastoring can do that to you. I've been a pastor for 35 years in the same church, so believe me, I know that to retain the kindness and the loveliness that these two have, their hospitality, their love for people, their openness of heart, their inquisitive mind to learn and grow and uh, be like that this many years in, I'm going to tell you is unusual and special about them. So I hope you look after them. Seriously. I hope you do. Because you know what? Good leaders are hard to find. In every walk of life, the cry out in from, from, from the leaders of our nations and industry and education and in the medical world, in the communication world, in the church world, the cry is for leaders. You have got good leaders and they're hard to find. So when you have good leaders, for God's sake, look after them because they're rare. And this kind of leaders don't come around often in a generation. So you are very blessed and very privileged to have them, as am I, to know them and to be my new friends. So thank you for your love and your welcome tonight. This is my fourth service of the day, but it's like the first time ever in my heart towards you tonight. I know, that was, that was, that was more corny than Kellogg's, but anyway... I'm going to read to you, um, by the way, some of my resources are here. I don't spend a lot of time on these, but they're out there somewhere. And, you know, all this stuff is just fantastic, I've got to tell you. So you might as well just buy it all. But this is for teenagers and about teenagers, the purple one. Most underestimated generation of all time, I think. We should expect far more from our kids. If you Google teenagers and, don't put anything else in, see what Google brings up. It's not good. Teenagers and, it brings up teenagers and drugs teenagers and child pregnancy, teenagers and crime. It doesn't bring up a good second word. 
I believe we need to change that. I think the church is part of changing that. And this is really my response to speaking into that generation. The purple one for you, maybe parents of teenagers. This blue one, I love this to bits because it's called Saw With Your Strength. I have a huge passion for helping people get out of them what God's put in them. And the earlier in life we get you into an environment and a culture where you can flourish, the better. So this is about finding your strength and soaring with it like a bird soars, soaring with your strength all of your life. And I think we have a great deal out there today where uh, you get this Wisdom for Life one, I think at a discount or thrown in or something, I don't know. But it's this Wisdom for Life, it's about 50 or 60, 5 to 8 minute Wisdom for Life thoughts, audios that I recorded. Stuff I wish someone had told me when I was younger and, and, and growing up in ministry. Stuff, stuff like, um, what would I say to a younger version of myself? Stuff like it's hard to change the world when you can't find your keys. Stuff like, stuff like you have to go through average to get to awesome. So don't despise average. The road to awesome always goes through a town called average. So you might as well just stay there long enough to realize what average is, and that's as good as it gets some days, and then just move on. Stuff that I think is almost contrary wisdom to what was told me as I grew up in the church world. So that and some of my books are there. Uh, please invest in your world. We're going to read from Luke 7, verse 1 to 10. It's a very familiar passage, as you'll know when we start pitching in here, but what I hope to show you from this is perhaps not as obvious uh, when you've read this passage in the past. And, and we're going to pitch in where it says, Jesus entered Capernaum, and there a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard about Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation has built our synagogue. And so Jesus went with them. He was on his way to the house when the centurion sent friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. This is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes, and I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Everybody say amazed. amazed. He was amazed at him. Turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. When the men who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. In your Bible and mine, this is subheaded, the centurion's servant. But in fact, that's the least of who this is about. We don't even know the name of this servant. We don't know the nature of the illness. We don't know why the servant mattered so much to the centurion. We don't know what happened at the moment of the healing. We don't know what happened in the recovery afterwards. We know all of that in many other encounters Jesus had. The narrative includes those details. Those are absent about this servant. The subheading of your Bibles are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's what translators felt they should describe it as. 
And so when we read that, it sets us up to expect that's all that is in this narrative. That's the least that's here. Because really this is far more about the centurion than it's about his servant. I want to speak to you tonight about something I'm calling. I try to be thoughtful and careful and forensic about titles. Because all over the world, I meet people all the time who say to me, I remember when you spoke that message on and mentioned a title going back 20 years. And I'm grateful that I took the time to think of a creative, imaginative, different title that it would stick in people's minds. And tonight, the title of this thought is The Centurion Factor. I want to speak to you about what I'm calling The Centurion Factor. And The Centurion Factor is summed up this way. Centurion faith and centurion fact of faith is the kind of faith that gets God to do stuff that no one knew God could do, would do, or even should do. Because here's what's unfolding. The centurion has a servant that's sick and he doesn't know Jesus, but he knows people who do. So he contacts the elders with whom clearly he had built a great relationship. These elders were smart guys because these elders of a Jewish synagogue had a large enough heart to include not only a Gentile, but a centurion. And they included him in their circle of love. And he loved them so much. And they said to Jesus when they approached him, this guy loves our nation so much that he even wrote a check for the synagogue work. So the centurion finance the building of the church, the building of the building, because these elders included him, loved him, welcomed him, and he obviously had wealth, and when they needed help with the building project, he wrote a check. How many would be open for an unsaved, wealthy person to write a check for your next building project? You know why that's not happening around the world for the church? Because we don't know and include any centurions. We judge them to be our enemies. We, we pray for them at a distance. We don't include them. We are ashamed of being associated with them. But these guys were smart and included him. And when they approached Jesus, they said to him, he's a great guy. And Jesus said, you know what? This is the kind of people I kind of want to help. And so I'm going to go to his house. So Jesus sets off. We don't know how far the journey was. We don't know how far Jesus was along the road to his house, but the centurion's at home mulling over what's going on, and he has a change of mind, and he sends a second delegation of his staff who intercept Jesus and say to him, our master sent us to say to you, please don't trouble yourself anymore. Just speak the word, and my servant will be healed. And then went on to explain to Jesus through the mouth of these two staff members, because our master says... He also is a man in authority like you are. He tells one, come and he comes, go and he goes. And our master figured out that if you are also a person of authority, he thinks you can do the same thing. That he sees your words like I see people. That I will send a person to do something and, and my master is saying, he thinks that you can send one of your words like I send a person because words are servants. You know that, don't you? Or masters. He said, send your word, therefore, and his servant will be healed. And Jesus turned to the crowd, including 
the guys that are with him 24-7, the church, the disciples, the insiders, and said to them as well as the crowd, I have never, ever, even in Israel, amongst people that know me well, amongst the insiders and my, my 24-7 companions, I've never seen such faith. And he was amazed and breathless at the idea of what this man said. And here's why it's amazing. See, the difficulty for us is that we do not read the Bible in real time. We read it with 2,000 years hindsight. So what we do is we flick the pages and think, oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's lovely. Oh, that's amazing. And we have no idea how lovely, how amazing, how breathtaking it was because it's not happening in real time. We have the benefit of hindsight and familiarity creeps in and we just flick the pages. But this is happening in real time. And here's why Jesus is amazed. He has never, ever to this point healed anyone without being present. And no one knew that was an option. He's always laid a hand on someone, been in the same room. No one knows that he doesn't need to be present. It took a Roman centurion who lived in a world of seals and signet rings on documents and the seal of the person that sent the letter or the order. The seal was as good as the presence of the person that said it. And he understood that if you did not obey what was on that piece of paper, you would be in trouble. It could cost you your job, your life, your status, because the signature of the person or the imprint in the, in the wax on the letter of the person that sent it was as good as presence. The, 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 the centurion understood that authority does not require presence to be authority. He understood this because he didn't have the baggage that we have in the church of seeing Jesus do something one way and we assume it will always be that way. So this outsider, this is why Jesus is amazed. In fact, Matthew says his interpretation of this is the people outside the kingdom are getting in on stuff ahead of the kingdom because they don't have the baggage, the familiarity that we struggle with to even see beyond what we think is going to happen next. So the centurion comes up with an idea that no one knew was an option. And he said, just say the word, don't bother coming. And so Jesus is walking down a road to his house. And here's what you need to understand. Jesus knew he could do that. But he didn't say anything. Jesus knew he could speak a word and the guy would be healed or the woman would be healed. He knew, he knew he didn't need to go to the man's house. He knew he didn't need to be present for a miracle to happen, but he never said anything. And it occurs to me and concerns me and frightens me that God would rather walk down roads he does not need to for your benefit rather than force something on you that you are uncomfortable with and troubled by being asked to do it. And even though Jesus knew he did not need to do that journey. He was willing to waste his time, as it were, in order to connect with the man based on his faith because this whole Christianity thing, this whole kingdom of God thing, operates according to your faith, not his. And this is something we have to have a heads up about because the centurion factor, which is missing in much of the church worldwide, this centurion factor gets God to do stuff no one knew God could do, no one knew was in his repertoire, no one knew was an option, but God knew, Jesus knew, 
and didn't say anything. So the stuff that God can do in our lives and in our churches that we don't know is an option and He is not going to tell you about it. And it strikes me, and I have studied this because it's my job to study it, church history. And I've studied it looking for lots of things. And one of the things I've noticed about church history, ancient and modern, is that by and large throughout church history, God does the same stuff. Variations, some things that are a little bit different. But by and large, God does the same thing generation in, generation out, unless someone steps up with what I'm calling a centurion factor and gets him to do something no one else knew he could do because no one had asked him to. And where there are spikes in church history, where there are spikes of significant breakthrough, of, of game-changing activities by the church, where there are spikes, we lazily call it a phenomenon. When we call it a phenomenon, it is assuming it is unavailable to us, it is unique, it is random, it is something God just did. No, no, you got to look closer because within what we call a phenomenon, you will find someone, a person or a body of people who have the audacity, the stupidity, the idiocy, the lack of maturity, the cheek, whatever you want to call it, and others would, to ask him to do something that all the rest of us that were educated and sophisticated and established and mature and full of the Spirit, all the rest of us didn't ask Him for fear of looking stupid, for fear of being accused of being presumptuous and left field and weird, where there are spikes in church history. Someone at the center of that move of God had a centurion factor response toward God. This is scary. And this is good news, depending how we view it, because 2016 will look very similar to 2015, which looked very similar to 2014, and on it goes. And 2016 being a repeat, by and large, of 2015 does not make us bad people, does not mean we're a bad church, does not mean we won't have a great time. What it does mean is that business as usual becomes our modus operandi and God who knows He can do more than that and He can do different says nothing and will not tell us. <laughs> Have you ever known someone or you think you know them really well and suddenly one day they do something that shocks you to the core? You're like, what? I was some years ago with a friend of mine called Bill Bill was in his late 50s and Bill and I were down near the student campus in a coffee shop talking about reaching out to the students and so on. And as we got up to leave the coffee shop, about 10, 12 young Chinese students came in and sat down, started talking to each other and having a coffee. As we got up to leave the coffee shop, Bill veered off towards them, walked up to them and started speaking to them in fluent perfect Chinese. I'd known Bill for about 12 years. Shocked is an underestimate <laughs> of what I felt when I saw Bill doing that. When I got Bill outside, I'm like, Bill, Bill, Bill. I, I almost, 
I felt offended, <laughs> upset even. It was that level of shock that how could I know you so long and not know, Bill, I didn't know, Bill, that you spoke Chinese. And Bill didn't bat an eyelid, showed no emotion, no explanation. He just said to me, you never asked. And he was right. And God is in this room tonight. And he says to us, I speak Chinese. And you don't know, because you never asked. I don't need to be present. I can speak a word. But everybody to this point didn't know because they never asked. But he knew. Every year for years in our church, we did a Christmas cabaret event. It was a black tie dinner. And the talent in our church would entertain the people. And we brought family and friends and business people. It was one of the greatest outreach things we did for many years. And every single year at the auditions, we were staggered at who rocked up to the auditions to show us their talent. And people would get up on stage that had been in the church for years and get a microphone and sing with an amazing voice or get on a piano and play beautiful classical music or would get up and recite poetry or do stand-up comedy or do juggling or magic or fire breathing or escapology, or a combination of those things. And we at every audition were so shocked, so amazed at what these people could do. And when we said to them, we didn't know you could do this, they would say a variation of, you never kind of asked. There was kind of no need for it, we didn't think round here. Now most of the people at the auditions, the most of the stuff I'm telling you about was rubbish. But some of it, <laughs> some of it was good enough to go through, you know, to the finals as it were. And they would, on the night, do their thing. And what I realized early on is that my enjoyment in the night was watching other people watch their friends do stuff they couldn't see coming a mile off. The palpable shock in the room when people saw people do stuff that they didn't know they could do. And if people you think you know really well sat next to you tonight are capable of doing things you don't know they can do, or they know stuff you don't know they know, or they have a talent, or an insight, or an ability, or an intelligence you don't know they have. How much more God? I've got to tell you, I think God must sit in heaven and be born out of his brains with the church. I think God must look at the church and think, Jeez, are we doing that again? I've done this for 500 years. It's a variation. It's kind of upgraded. It's more trendy. It's... But really, is this it? Until someone somewhere has this centurion factor moment. You know what we do then? You know what we do then? We call it a move of God and get on a plane and go there. And say, have you been to the move of God? And I think God's saying, no, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't, don't get on a plane and go somewhere as if it's something trapped in a locality of the world where God is doing something for them he didn't want to do for you. Because if you analyze these moves of God, then you will find somewhere in the midst of all that has had 
the audacity, the stupidity to attempt something, to say something, to have a go at something and found that God was strangely up for it. And often the people at the core of these things are people that may not even be welcome in most churches. They're outsiders. Who knew? Who knew that a man could get the sun to stand still? What? We have to say that the centurion factor is, is human interruption of divine intention. It's, it's God intending to do the same stuff He's always done. Because nobody's asking Him to do anything different. It's Jesus walking down a road until a human being intercepts Him, alters His course, hijacks Him with a new idea. And what we're finding is that God is wide open to another suggestion. But if you don't have any, it will be the same walk down the same road in every generation. Because God will do the same thing unless someone asks him not to, even though he knows he can do different stuff. It seems to me that God has this massive range of stuff he can do, but he will not announce it. He didn't say to Joshua, hey, and, the, and here's how this went down. This is crazy. Joshua has a very practical problem. He's at war. They're in a battle, and it's getting dark. They are in the advantageous position of winning the battle that day, but it's getting dark. And Joshua figures that when it gets dark, we'll lose our advantage. Under the cover of darkness, the enemy will run away and they'll live to fight another day. And I want to finish them off. We're nearly there. Maybe a few more hours is how he's reckoning. And so in his naive, non-scientific, uneducated mind, he looks up at the sky and shouts at the sun, Sun, stand still! And the people next to him thought, what did he just say? What, what, did, what did Joshua just say? He shouted at the sun, sun stand still. Whoa. But you know what? God said, I can do that. Nobody's ever asked me before. In fact, in fact, in Joshua 10, 14, it says this. There has never been a day like this. Before or since, a day when God listened to a human being. Now, God knew he could do that, but God didn't say to Joshua, hey, I see you have a problem. Here's what I'm suggesting. I am going to stop the sun going down and I'm going to give you a few, and I can do that, I'm God. God would have allowed the darkness to come and the enemy to run away and Israel to lose that advantage. God would have allowed that to happen. It happened many, many other times and has since. But on this day, a man decided for some weird reason to shout at the sun. God didn't say to Joshua, hey, listen, if you're going to ask me this stuff, get your science right. Because the sun doesn't move. In every service I've said that today, too many people have looked at me like you don't know that. And that's scary. The sun doesn't move. The earth moves around the sun. So what he's actually asking God to do is to slow down 
the orbit of the earth around the sun. That's what he's asking for. But God didn't say, hey, don't ask me to do that. That's not even scientifically right. What you're asking me to do is to slow down the orbit of the earth around the sun. That's what he's like. God didn't mess with him. God didn't make him look stupid. God understood, as he does with you, what he wanted to do. He just wants a few more hours of daylight. It's getting dark. I need to stay light for about three, four more hours, God. I don't know how to say that. Sun stands still. He's busy in the middle of a battle. Sun stands still. Who knew? Who knew that that was an option? Who knew that that was even on the agenda? Who knew? God knew, but he said nothing. He knew, God knew he could speak Chinese and said nothing. Who knew? Who flipping knew? I had flipping for emphasis. Who knew that sick people could get healed in the shadow? What? You've got to read your Bible and think, that's the craziest thing. This was not God's idea. It wasn't Peter's idea. I don't know if Peter knew anything about it when it happened. Sick people that decided that they couldn't get to the prayer meeting or Peter's too busy or they're too disabled decided, hey, every day, I've got a good shadow here tonight. Every day Peter walks up this street to go to the temple. What we're going to do, we're going to line up all our sick family and friends along the street. And about noon, when the sun is the highest and the shadow is the longest, we're going to line them up so his shadow hits you all. When his shadow hits you, we're going to get a miracle. They plotted it between them. I'm sure there were many people in that crowd amongst them that it is. That's ridiculous. That's crazy. That's the daftest thing I've ever heard. I'm not going. And they stayed home. But some of them were daft enough to go and sit at the side of the road. And when Peter comes, just an ordinary day, this wasn't Peter's idea. Peter's just walking to the temple, whistling as he goes like he did every other day. And as he's walking by them, in, unknown to him, behind him, they're getting out of wheelchairs and blind eyes have been opened and deaf ears have been opened and demons have been cast out and bodies have been put together. As he walks by and his shadow hits them. This was not God's idea. It's people that came up with it. Who knew? Who knew that was even an option? I mean, we've heard about speaking a word. We get that. This is another level. This is nothing said. This is a shadow for crying out loud. Who flipping knew? That you could pray over a handkerchief. How ridiculous is this? You could pray over a piece of cloth, a handkerchief that belonged to a sick person and then carry it back to that sick person and when that handkerchief went onto the body of the sick person, they got healed or delivered or set free or got a miracle. This was not God's idea, nor Paul's. All we hear in Acts is that God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. God knew all along he could do those, but it was people's idea to bring stuff to Paul because they had a practical problem that they couldn't get their loved ones close enough to Paul. So they said to themselves, maybe we don't need his presence to get a miracle. We heard about the shadow stuff. Why don't we try something with the piece of cloth instead? And they did that and God said, high five, I can do that too. Yeah. Why not happen before? Because no one had asked. Who knew 
that you could have a fish cash machine. A fish ATM. How ridiculous. Jesus, we need to pay some taxes. You know, the tax, temple tax guys are on our back. And Okay, Peter, well, here's what we'll do. Go down and catch a fish. Hang on, Jesus. Did you say a fish? That's not enough to catch and sell and pay the taxes. We've got to go fishing, catch a lot of fish, sell them, you know, Jesus. No, no, you don't get it, Peter. Go catch a fish. Imagine hearing this in real time. Catch a fish. Yeah. This guy's a fisherman. He knows fish. He's never heard of one like this. Go catch a fish. Yeah, yeah. In the mouth of the fish. Hang on a minute. What did you say? In the mouth of the fish. Yeah. There'll be some money. What did you say? There'll be some money. You get that money. You can imagine Peter like, and the guy's like, you get the money out of the fish and that money will be enough to pay our taxes. I mean, what an elaborate, unnecessary way to pay taxes. We should all find out where these fish are, by the way. Some of you hold so much tax, you need a whale. I understand. Who knew that Jesus could walk on water? I mean, what a waste of time is this? This walking on water isn't helping anyone. It's not healing anyone sick. It's not feeding a hungry person. It's not delivering someone of an affliction. It's not clothing the naked. This walking on water is showing off. It's exactly what it is. This walking on water is gratuitous. It's self-indulgent demonstration it's God saying, I can walk on water, you know. Just letting you know. And despite us knowing he can do that, we ask so small. And here's what you need to know. These are one-offs. These things I'm mentioning to you are kind of one-offs. They're not everyday occurrences. They're not regular things throughout the narrative of his life. And they're one-offs for a simple reason. They're not supposed to be copied. What we do is we go and start the shadow healing church. The walking on water church. And we, we see it as some kind of benchmark that God wants us to reach to. These are not there for us to franchise. They're simply a heads up. It's God saying, heads up guys, I can speak Chinese. Heads up guys, I can juggle and do stand-up comedy. It's heads up guys, I can do stuff, and I can do stuff that you have never thought of, and I can do stuff, and I've done stuff because someone asked me to, and I am very interested as to whether or not the church in this generation, whether or not in its leadership and in its congregations, whether or not in 2016 it will be business as usual, or will there be anyone at all in the combination of people that will have the audacity the foolishness, the naivety, whatever others will call it, to say, God, we need you to do something special this year and I've got an idea. Because it strikes me that unless you have an idea, God will let you have last year's idea. And you just upgrade it a little bit. And there are things that need to happen in our communities 
and in and through our churches that will not happen if we are committed to and we are comfortable in and we celebrate and we love same old, same old. And I think God is so bored if God gets bored, and I'm sure He doesn't. So I'm using that term so that you know what I'm trying to say. He is bored with how little we ask, how weak our imaginations are. Even when we have this stuff to refer to that I'm turning you to now and mentioning, it's like, what, what? That's amazing. Of course it is. Of course it is. And yet we treat Him like He can't do anything. We treat God like He's in a matchbox in our pocket. And we take matchbox-sized things to Him and think how wonderful He did that for us. And we put Him away and decades go by in the church in our nations. Decades before someone else interrupts and intercepts divine intention with a human initiative. And there's never been a day like it or before when God listened to a human. Never a day before or since. Well, we're still in since. We're still the other side of that. Never been a day like it before or since. Says who? I read that as a, says who? We're in a sense, you know, when, when half our church left, in 1998-99, over 300 people left us in our reinvention that I wrote about in this book called Crossing Over. 300 of our church left. The musicians, the band, in fact, the band went first, the beggars. <laughs> Flaky musicians. The band went first and took others with them. And 300 people left our church. And in my deepest, darkest, loneliest moments in that reinvention of our church, I said to God one day, God, this is a nightmare. But I'm going to tell you something. If you're up for it, I am open to doing something else, starting again with this group of people that are shattered and worn out and beat up. We are going to be willing to step up and do something else and do something different. And 300 of us-ish were left in 1999 and we started again and we crossed over, to use the language of Joshua, going from the wilderness to Canaan. We crossed over into a new identity, a new beginning, a new DNA, a new culture. And the rest, as they say, is history. We are now around 4,000 people. We reach tens of thousands of people every single month in our city. We have a voice to our nation and across the world. You may call it, and history may say, in 50 years' time, oh, that was a move of God, that was a phenomenon. Whoa, hang on, back up, stop, pause. Whoa. Don't be lazy. I'm telling you, that's why I wrote this book. I'm telling you what people later give names to, that they wouldn't dream of giving to it, when it's happening, because they're like, the jury's still out, let's wait and see what happens here. At the heart of that is someone, a man, a woman, a couple, a family, a few people that stepped up and said, God, if you, if you will use us, we are so beat up and so disheartened and everything said about us is nasty and negative and I lived through that for three years, battling the church mafia. Every church has them. They're not necessarily Italian, but they're very organized and very intimidating and very controlling. And you know what? When I said that to God in my deepest, darkest moments, here's the deal. God said nothing. Do you know God's very rude? You need to know that about God. 
God's got terrible manners. As we are raised and as we are educated in the social norms of life, God doesn't give a rip about that. When you desperately most need God to show up, He is absent and quiet. What's that about? And when you don't want Him to talk, He won't shut up. And so I just assumed if God didn't say anything to me, I learned to train my heart like a child asking mum for a biscuit. If mum says nothing, the child does not assume it means no. I decided my relationship with God would be forever afterwards. If you don't say to me anything, I'm taking it as a green light. So I began in the late 90s all over again with a few beat up people and decided to have another go and God seemed to be interested and fascinated by this human interruption, this audacity to say God use us. Use us, we're beat up, we're not the best, we're not the biggest, we're not the smartest, but if you will use us, we will serve our hearts out to make a difference in this city and in this nation. And 15 years back in hindsight, God seemed to be interested in that. And He still is. And He is here, here in this church because the best days of this church's life are not behind you. Neither are they now. Your best days are ahead of you. And what makes them the best days is far less to do with God than you think it is and far more to do with you than you think it is. For in every generation, God is the same. His word is the same. His power is the same. His spirit is the same. His purpose is the same. In every single generation, God is the same. He changes not. So how then do we explain that in every single generation God can't get the same stuff done? Why are there spikes? Why would there be spikes if He's the same all over the world all the time in every generation? Why? Because there's something in every generation. There's someone in every generation who's not the same, who's not reliable. That's us. In the combination and the ingredients that go into a move of God in any generation... There is one random, unquantifiable X factor. It's called the church. And according to the caliber of the church who are alive at that time, determines whether or not God gets something unusual done. According to whether or not there is a centurion factor element in the life of the church at that time. If there is, it's a spike. If there is, it's what we call a move of God. If there is, it's a game changer. If there isn't, it's business as usual. A generation or two goes by and God just waits. And God will wait a long time. Even though He knows He can do stuff. He will wait until someone asks Him, steps up. Why? And I think this is really crazy of God. If I were God, I would not use people. This is a huge strategic weakness to me. Because I'll get the band back up here. Gives people hope we've finished. (laughs) If I were God, I wouldn't use such flaky, unreliable, here today, gone tomorrow, people. I'd use angels, people that do as they're told. But God has confined himself. God has constrained himself to us. 
And God is perfectly willing for our generation of the church to come and go and stamped on it business as usual. He's done it for thousands of years. But what he won't do is do it for us. And this whole thing is like a Mexican standoff. It's like a game of chess where the church is at one side of the board and God's at the other and the church is looking at God saying, it's your move. And God's looking at us saying, it's not my move. I moved 2,000 years ago. Newsflash. When Peter said at Pentecost, this is that, and tied up Joel's prophecy and Pentecost, this is that newsflash. This is still that. Nothing new for 2,000 years. Nothing. What are we expecting God to do that He hasn't done? Do we think He has a second son hiding behind the throne that we don't know about? The way we pray, it's as if God's holding out on us. And if we hardcore enough and pray and fast and shabba do enough, God may give us what He didn't give the others. We could be the generation. This revival mentality, stop it. There's no cavalry coming. There's no plan B. It's as if God has gone to the church, tag, you're it. And we tagged, tag, you're it, and we stand there. And 20 years go by, whilst we say, move by your spirit. Oh God, move on our city, move in our hearts. And God's like, 20 years ago, I tagged you, you're it. From that moment, you were supposed to run and go and do and attempt and be audacious and ask for strange things and just do stuff. Tag you it. Oh God, move. Move by your spirit. Lord, use me. God's like, I am so bored with this stupidity. Because every single move of God that he's ever done, he uses people. Was there a move of God in Nehemiah's time? Was there? Not a trick question. I don't do them. Was there a move of God in Nehemiah's time? You can talk to me. How do you know? Nehemiah. How do you know there's a move of God in Nehemiah's time? Nehemiah. How does the move of God in Joseph's time? Joseph. I could go on. The only way we know that God did something is because of names of people. It wasn't just God did something. Oh, what did he do? Just did stuff. Just in spite of. And away from the church. No, he's not going to do that. And so I would just want to pray as I close. Let's all stand together. Come on. Forgive me for going over time, but I don't come often. Huh. Come on, every eye closed all across this place for a couple of minutes. Well, God, here we are, eh? January 2016. Some of us in this room are 
scared to death about business as usual. Some of us in here hope that's all it will be. This tension that we have in our churches between those that want new and want to move to the next level and those that are settling. God help us in 2016 to find a resolve for this conflict in our hearts and in our churches. I pray, Lord, for an epidemic of the centurion factor in this church in 2016. I pray for unusual requests and unusual initiatives and imaginative endeavors in people's lives. And many of these things may be so small that no one ever knows, but it is your own personal centurion factor moment in your personal family, in your life, in your career, in the community, something that you do in your business world or in your educational world or in your family relational world or where you do life nine to five in the week, that this centurion factor is not just for the church and inside the four walls of this building. That's the last place almost we should expect it to happen. But that we take this to the streets, we take this to our community, that people find us in 2016 different. There's something different about us. There's a twinkle in our eye. There's a refusal to settle. There is a new energy, a new passion. There is a cheekiness. There is a naughtiness in us to not go back in the box, to not be quiet, to not settle for business as usual because we have a sneaking feeling that God speaks Chinese. And it's not because we didn't ask Him. You have not because you ask not. There's a beautiful passage at the end of John where it says, Jesus did many miraculous signs in the presence of the disciples in the upper room. But John says they are not recorded here or anywhere. So Jesus said, I'm going to do a couple of days with you guys. I'm going to do a miracles in front of your eyes. These were not miracles of intervention or healing or salvation. No one needed it in that room. I am intrigued by what he did and why he did it. This is what I call the undiscovered Jesus. Did what he do in that room that day. It's something he did, something we need in our churches, something you need in your life. And if he did all that stuff that we don't even know is recorded, I'm intrigued about that nameless stuff that is still unrequested and is still on the shelf in heaven because no one's asked for it yet. Let Victory Church be the askers this year. Ask big. Ask unusual. Step up and say we will not be normal this year. We will not default, and that's the word. We will not default to our autopilot of comfort and safety. And we will not just have a 2016 that's a repeat and we cover over how boring it is by trying to find an energy and shout over it and exaggerate what's going on that's not there. We will not do that. We want this year without any hype, without any 
exaggeration, without any forcing anything. We want this year to be our centurion factor year. God, why not us? Why not here? Why not now? Is what's in our hearts. And yet we are so afraid. We are so intimidated. We are so lazy. We are so addicted to comfort. God, forgive us that we so rarely amaze you these days. God, forgive us that your amazement has decades between it. I pray that this church this year amazes you. I really do. And I pray that what can be said about this church at the end of 2016 is who knew? Who knew that God could or would or should do that for us here in victory and through victory into our community? Wow. What a vintage, outstanding year. Let these words be said as 2016 unfolds. And we know that that is nothing to do with you and everything to do with us. God, forgive us for standing still after you tagged us. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have any questions, please email us at admin at victorychurch.net.au. 